976. So this is the Lutheran church I grew up in. If you're from Decatur, if you're from the area, you know it. It's Pilgrim Lutheran Church on Oakland Avenue. Uh, it was a break-off, uh, kind of a renegade Missouri-centered church back in the day. Uh, they didn't participate in uh, the forming of the Lutheran School Association, and so they were always considered kind of like not a team player. Um, but my family was really close with the founding pastor of, of Pilgrim Lutheran Church. His name was George Biterweed, and they called him Pastor B. Uh, his daughter was my babysitter as a child, and we have lots of good memories. She was a really fun babysitter. But at any rate, at Pilgrim Lutheran Church, I think Ephesians kind of starts off in a way that the Lutheran Church would really appreciate, because at the Lutheran Church, there was a very strict liturgy, and I don't remember in the Lutheran Church, I could be wrong, I don't remember they ever did announcements in the Lutheran Church. That just was just not the kind of thing we did at Pilgrim Lutheran Church. Uh, there was a bulletin for that. There may have been other ways to communicate announcements, but not during a worship service where the church is gathering. So very early on in every Pilgrim Lutheran Church service I ever attended was you or not the Agnes Day, the Gloria Patri, right at the beginning, which is, we sing it occasionally here, it's on the front of our hymnal, Glory be to the Father and to the Son. We're not going to sing it now, but uh, every Lutheran church, or every service did that. They always celebrated the Trinity at the beginning of the service. And it was very early on in the service to kind of make sure you know what this is about. It's about God three in one, and really not just ourselves. So, in the same way, Ephesians starts off with a, a very brief introduction. Chapter 1, just two verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, after that brief introduction, Paul launches into this wonderful note of praise it just keeps going and go. it's wave after wave. And it's only one sentence from verse 3 in Greek, not in your English Bible, but in Greek from verse 3 through all of verse 14 is one long sentence of praise. Because Paul's like, I don't know, he's, he's a horrible uh, grammatarian or whatever the word would, gram- I mean, who would do that? Like, this is a horrible sentence to try to construct and figure out and understand what's talking about. The parts are moving, but it's this grand note of praise that starts off with verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So he's just starting off. Do you realize how much you're blessed? And this blessing, which on one hand is singular, is comprised of many blessings. So the one blessing has all these different components that he describes in the one long sentence, verse 3 to verse 14. So the way to kind of diagram it, what we've been talking about, it looks something like this. The blessings reach back into eternity past. They move forward to the historical past with present and ongoing effects. And they finally extend into the fullness of time, or what we sometimes is referred to in Scripture, uh, the age to come. We live in the present age, there's an age to come. The blessings don't stop only so long as you're living now. They extend into the, to the fullness of time, the age to come. These blessings are so comprehensive. So, 
the blessings reaching back into eternity past. Those are verses 4 to 6. Let me read them. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has favored us in the beloved. That's that's eternity past how the blessing gets started. Then it moves forward to the historical past with abiding present effects in verses 7 and 9. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. That's the historical past, and it results in something that's a blessing right now for God's people. And then, so far as the fullness of time that's alluded to or referenced in verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. The span of God's blessing is so great, it's from before the creation of the world, and it will continue well past the world as we know it, into a new heaven and a new earth. Well, we've spent a number of weeks on verses 4 to 6, the blessings which reach back into eternity past. Now we're starting to look at the historical past, and it's blessing for God's people at any given point in present history. That's where we're picking up starting today. William Hendrickson, a commentator, says, Our attention has shifted from heaven to earth, from the past to the present, and in a sense, from the Father to the Son. He says in a sense because it's clear the Father still is playing a role in verses 7 to 9. He's still playing a role in verse 10. He's playing a role through it all. But in a sense... The focus of attention shifts from what the Father has planned from before creation to what is happening in history as it plays out. In the fullness of time, Christ was born. In the fullness of time, he died on a cross. In the fullness of time, according to Scripture, he rose again on the third day. All this is a fulfillment of what God had purposed from before we ever knew anything about it. So I thought that was a great quote by William Hendrickson. What we have now, he starts off, is what we have now, we have redemption. Because of this historical past, Christ came offering, laying down his life for the forgiveness of sins, for the forgiveness of trespasses. If he doesn't lay down his life, there is no forgiveness of sins. There is no for- So scripture has this wonderful phrase, to believers, what we have. And sometimes we don't realize what we have because we look at what we don't have. And sometimes what we don't have, we think, is if God would give us those things, we would be contented, happy, peaceful people. But in fact, if you're a Christian, what God has given you, what you have, is the basis of your peace and your joy and your contentment. And that brings me to the scripture reading that's in your bulletin. Different volunteers can read. You don't need to read the reference. Where it's bold print, everybody reads together. So just to get us started, I'll read the first uh, volunteer part, but you've got to help me at the beginning because it's a bold print. Let's read. 
In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of... That's what we have. That would be a good focus of, atten- uh, of our attention. And it's a good way to pray to God, thanking him for all that we have. That's part of the blessing. So, now back to Ephesians in verse 7. We're going to talk a lot about the word redemption, which is a word that we don't probably use a lot in our culture. Uh, not so much as we become more modern, it probably gets used less. But the easy way in which it's used would be different stores offer different rewards programs. Uh, The only one that I know that I personally benefit from, I guess on some level, would be Kroger. The more dollars you spend at Kroger, the more points you get, which you can then exchange those points to get cents off of your gas purchase, which nowadays, sometimes it's a deal, sometimes it's not. It just kind of depends on the price of Kroger. depends on how much money you've spent at Kroger, how many points you've gotten. But when you would do that... It's commonly said you redeem your points for cents off of your purchase. You redeem them. So from, from using the word in that way, we know that redemption has something to do with a transaction where we receive something of value, but to receive something of value, something of value was also given. That's redemption. We, we redeem things. Well, let's build on that. Let's start with my unabridged dictionary in my office. The word redemption is defined this way, and there are like levels, like I don't know how many total definitions they give. I'm giving you the top two definitions for the word redemption. Number one, an act of redeeming or the state of being redeemed. That doesn't help much. Number two, deliverance or rescue. Now that's interesting. Uh, I think that plays well. In him we have redemption. In him we have deliverance. In him we have rescue through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Let's look at, let's shift from the word redemption to the word redeem out of the same dictionary. The top three uh, definitions it gives are these. Number one, to buy or pay off, clear by payment. To redeem, to buy back, and to redeem, to recover by payment or other satisfaction. All those fit quite well with what Paul writes about this blessing we have in a historical past where we have redemption through his blood. By Christ offering up his life as a sacrifice for sin, we have redemption. We've been rescued. We've been recovered by payment. We've been bought back. And it came at a certain cost. That's just a secular understanding of the word redemption. The cost was through his blood, which doesn't play well in our culture. And because it doesn't play well in our culture, increasingly churches don't like to talk about the blood. One of the things I like about going the few times I've been to Capitol Hill Baptist in Washington, D.C., is it seems like every time they have, it's quite a long service. It's generally a couple hours long, if not a little longer, but I'll call it two hours long and It seems like every time during that service, because they sing so many songs, there's always one song where they they sing about the blood, the blood of redemption, whatever that song looks like. If I 
memory serves me right, I remember Billy Graham talking about early in his ministry, there was one message where he didn't preach and specifically talk about the blood, and he regretted it, and he felt convicted by it. And so he determined from that day forward he would never preach and not mention the blood of Christ. But that doesn't play well in our culture. We don't, we don't like to talk about blood. It's become increasingly popular in, in I'm going to call it more liberal circles, or even among some well-meaning Christians, to just kind of not talk about the blood. It's maybe not as necessary as what we were led to believe. And to do that, I'm going to, I'm going to refer to Bart Campolo. He was Tony Campolo's son, still is. Tony Campolo was a very popular Christian speaker. He was a professor at, I think, Eastern College out in Pennsylvania. Uh, Tony Campolo said a lot of good things, but he said some things that were not so good. Uh, but he was very dynamic. He was very high in demand. Well, well Bart Campolo took that, and he wound up renouncing Christianity. He's become a secular humanist. He's a secular humanist chaplain. Uh, he's served at different um, universities. I'm not sure where he's at now. I think he, at one point, was at University of Cincinnati. I think he went to California. I've lost track. But Bart Campolo is going to give you a good example of heresy. I don't, it's going to sound nice. It's going to sound somewhat winsome. It's just not true. And, and part of the problem of what Bart Campolo says is that he's imagining God is just like we are. That's one of the root problems. If God is just like us, no better, no worse, we have good intentions, God has good intentions. If God is no different, then maybe this is a good theology. But it's not what the Bible teaches. And hopefully as we work through this passage, it'll become more clear. I do need to turn it up, though, because for whatever reason, this recording, this video is not very loud. So this is Bart Campolo. Most evangelicals say, like, what's the point of Jesus? And they go, well, he came to die for our sins. And like, I don't think that was the point. God wants to forgive you, but he can't forgive you unless he kills somebody. And so Jesus came so that God could kill him instead of you. And so it ends up being like, dear Jesus, deliver us from God. And I sort of go like, nah, I think like, if I, if I read Jesus right, we're supposed to just forgive people. Like, not kill anybody, no retribution, just like, you know, like forgive. And if they screw up again, like, do it maybe seven, 70 times seven. Like, just forgive people out of the goodness of your heart. So I sort of tend to think that God, if he wants to forgive us, just forgives us. So I think that Jesus came to talk about, I just, I think he, Jesus came to talk about the grace, to share this is who God really is. And he's probably pretty aware of the fact that if you shared grace, the religious people would kill you because it would evacuate them of all authority. If God just loves people regardless of what they do, then like all the, the rule keepers and the rule makers, they're screwed. So like I think like he may have known he was going to die. He did know he was going to die. But he didn't come to die. He came to love and to share love, knowing that, you know, like, knowing that this is how it's going to end. And so if I was a Christian and I was going to celebrate anything, I'd celebrate the resurrection. But the idea of like, the cross is the moment in history, like, your God must really suck if he has to kill somebody. If he like, he just can't get around forgiving you unless he kills somebody. It just doesn't make sense to me.
So that's secular humanism. There's problems with it on many levels, one of which is, I think even on even from his vantage point, if you were to try to apply that to really culture and life and, and uh, how society works, it would be a disaster. I mean, we just had you know, an elementary school where, what, 19 people were killed? Was it 19 students and two teachers, or was it 17 and two? But it, it's a travesty, and, and in this world, it's like, well, we should just all forgive. There should be, there's, we don't have to strive for any, any meaningful justice. There doesn't have to be anybody, nobody has to be held, held accountable. We just forgive, so that no matter what anybody does at any time, you just say, ah, oh, I forgive you. And it would be chaos, and it would be hell. And somehow we think, well, yeah, maybe if I did something like that, God should administer some sort of justice, but what I don't understand is God is not like I am. And that my little indiscretions, which I think I can sweep under the rug, somehow, oh, God can just forgive those. No, God is good, and he's holy. And my little indiscretions can't just be forgiven without God saying, but I'm holy. And it has to be dealt with. And any indiscretion against an altogether holy God is treason, and it's worthy of damnation. So let's break this down. Let me compare what you just saw with this individual. He's a 17th century Puritan. He was a Scottish Puritan, not an uh, English Puritan. We're probably more familiar with the English. Uh, Robert Layton. He said these words... I think I edited them just a little bit because Puritans are hard to read, which is what I was telling Maxine. Uh, So I, I might have changed just a couple words to make it a little more readable. Essentially, he said this. This, I say, is the great work wherein all these glorious attributes of God shine jointly. His wisdom, his power, his goodness, his justice and mercy... As in great maps or pictures, you will see the border decorated with meadows and fountains and flowers represented in it. But in the middle, you have the main design. Thus is this foreordained redemption among the works of God. All his other works in the world, all the beauty of the creatures and the succession of ages and the things that come to pass in them are but as the border to this as the main piece. So what he's suggesting, what he would tell Bart Campolo is, you're admiring something about the border. Christ did love. He is a friend of sinners. He did many admirable things. But if in all of that you missed the cross, you've missed the center. You've missed the point of it all. That's the, that's the focus. That's why all the border, it's the border is meant to draw you in to this one essential truth that if we don't have that, we really fall dead in our sins. We remain dead in our sins. It's kind of like there's another passage, you're familiar with it, in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. And they do. But if I think I can go through life and have peace with God because I celebrate His creation, and I never get to the cross, I've never gotten to the point of all that God has done. All of His wisdom, all of His power, all of His character revealed in creation to that extent, only revealed in the person of his son to that extent. The cross is central to it all. If if Robert Layton is right, and I think that he is. Redemption is closely associated with the previous blessing of adoption as sons. Now, adoption as sons is a wholly positive image. 
that you could be adopted in, as a son into the family of God. Christ is your brother. That's a very positive image. But enhancing that is this idea of redemption, because redemption is, is how the adoption took place. In any adoption, there's paperwork that needs to be done. There are legalities that need to be satisfied. You just can't adopt somebody and it not, and it be legal when you haven't gone through the legal process. There's adoption as sons, but it requires a process. It requires redemption. Even in a, in a lesser sense than adoption, if you were to purchase a piece of property or if you were to purchase a home, there's going to be a title search. And when they do the title search, or if there are outstanding debts against that property, you are now liable for those debts. You cannot own that piece of property unless you deal with the debt. In the same way, for God to adopt into his family, you know what? There's a debt. You can't adopt without dealing with the debt. That's redemption. It deals with the debt. What are we going to do about the debt? Adopting a sinner such as that into God's family. What do you do with the debt? Redemption. Redemption answers the question is how the debt is dealt with. The key differences between redemption and adoption is the environment from which each word is taken. Adoption, we've already talked about it, it's a a relationship word. It's a very positive word. It's describing a desirable relationship. But the word redemption is not a relationship word. It's a marketing word. It's an economic word. It's It's taken out of the marketplace. Specifically, especially in their culture, it would be identified with slavery. So now we've got a better picture of of what adoption into God's family looks like. God adopts out of a slave market of sin, because that's what we were. And a cost had to be paid to be adopted, not as a slave into God's family, but as a son into God's family. Now you've got two images put together which are are completing a picture of what it means to be a receiver, a recipient of the grace of God unto salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. Adopted out of slavery as God's sons. And both of those acts, adoption and redemption, require Christ. Which is very clear in the scripture. It's in Christ. I think I told you 12 times in that one sentence, Paul talks about in the beloved, in Christ Jesus, in him. There is no adoption into God's family apart from Christ. But you could be a religious person. And you can be sincere. Cornelius was not adopted into God's family until he placed his faith in Christ. He was religious. He was devout. He prayed. But God knew for him to be adopted into his family as a son, Peter had to be sent. Somebody had to be sent to share with him the gospel so that faith would be in Christ. Because adoption is in him. Redemption is in him. And no other. There's no other name given under heaven. I didn't make this stuff up. I didn't write it. But God says the only way to have the forgiveness of sins is in Christ. Both of those require Christ. Let's talk about the word in the New Testament, redemption. There are actually three possible words that might be used. You can tell that the first two are very closely related. The third is really quite different. The first word, though it only on one or two occasions has ever translated redemption, it's really not a good translation, but because it is, it's one of the three. 
The first word, agorazo, it means to frequent the marketplace. In Greek, the marketplace is the agora. So the first word is to do business in the agora. It means to buy, to sell, to transact business. That's the first word that's used. Some very notable verses that use the word. One is Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. And this is where it's actually uh, not a good translation. Though the context makes it clear we're talking about more than just a purchase. We are talking about uh, what leads to adoption. Revelation, it's a, it's a worshiping uh, the Lamb. It's worshiping God in the scenes of heaven. It says, uh, they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open the seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed for God people from every tribe, language, people, and nation. You ransomed for uh, people for God from all over the world. Well, the, world, the word actually means bought. Uh, he did ransom people, redeem people from all over the world, but there the word is actually just bought. He bought people from all over the world. The second word is, the second time it's used, by the way, the word is used 31 times in the New Testament. I'm only showing you two. Of the 31 times it's used in the New Testament, 28 times they translate it bought, buy. A certain man went by a a certain plot of land. Uh, He bought this. He purchased that. 28 or 31 times, that's exactly how it's translated. The other very interesting case is in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 1, and this is regarding false teachers. It reads, But false prophets also arose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. According to 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 1, these false teachers have been bought by Christ. And it's this idea of a purchase. It's a very, it's just a marketing kind of word, uh, There's not a lot filled in. There's probably more questions than are answered uh, by the word is always purchased. The second word is similar to the first word, but it's it's got this prefix X, so it looks like this. The X makes it a strengthened form of the first word. It means to buy, just like the first word, but now the prefix means to buy out or to buy up or to buy back. It's commonly used of purchasing a slave with a view to his freedom. So, so in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, you've got Christ buying false teachers. I don't know why. And we'll let Larry handle that in Sunday school. He handles controversy quite well. Uh, because there's, I'm sure there are all kinds of answers what that could possibly mean. But the second word is far clearer. The emphasis is still on a purchase is being made, but now it's to buy out. In fact, that's the primary meaning. It could be up or back, but primarily it's to buy out of, to buy out of the marketplace. It's to take out of the marketplace. That's the second word. Notable examples of this are in Galatians. And Galatians is only one book before Ephesians, so go back to Galatians. Chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. This is the second word for redeem. Galatians chapter 3, verse 4. Paul writes, But when the fullness of time had come, 
God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. That's such a great cross-reference because it has both redemption and adoption. When the fullness of time came, the plan of God, which is from eternity past, when the fullness of time came, Christ came, he bought for adoption. That's verses 4 and 5. If you go to chapter 3 and verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. He bought out of, he delivered out of, because of the purchase, using the purchasing of his blood. The third word, this is the verb, this is the noun. There's actually lots of variations from this same basic root. But the third word for redemption is the most powerful. It means to release upon receipt of ransom. Uh, the actual word ransom comes from the same family of words. This word emphasizes the actual deliverance and setting at liberty. The other two words are emphasizing the cost, the price. Something had to be paid to get what you wanted. This word emphasizes the end result. Because something was paid, the end result is they're set at liberty. They're free because of that end result. That's the word that's used in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7 where we are at. It's used in verse 14. It's used in Colossians 1, 13 and 14. That's in your scripture reading. You can look at it again there. It's used in Romans chapter 8 and verse 23. It's buying to set free. I think Jonathan Edwards can help us here. In him we have redemption through his blood. Jonathan Edwards is arguably considered uh, the most brilliant theological mind America has ever produced. That's arguable that he's often considered that. Jonathan Edwards said this. By Christ's purchasing redemption, two things are intended. Christ's redemption purchased satisfaction and merit. The one pays our debt and so satisfies. The other procures our title and so merits. The satisfaction of Christ is to free us from misery. The merit of Christ is to purchase happiness. That seems like a horrible word to use there. If I put it in the language of Ephesians, it is the merit of Christ is to purchase freedom. The merit of Christ is to purchase adoption as sons. So he talks about two things there. When Christ purchased, he satisfied and he brought merit. He procured a title. He satisfied the righteous demands of God that justice be met. He paid the debt that I owed. Because I can't be adopted without you taking my debt. And he dealt with the debt. He satisfied a holy God who cannot so much as look upon evil. He satisfied that debt. But he also procured for me a title. I'm adopted as a son. I have all the merits of Christ, not my own. That's what Christ purchased when he redeemed me out of a marketplace of sin. Does the forgiveness of sins and trespasses and adoption into God's family really require Jesus' shed blood? 
Is that really what is required for me to be adopted? Is that really what's behind redemption? I would say, first of all, that's exactly what Christ believed. When hours before he would be nailed to a cross and suffer and die, hours before as he broke bread and he shared a cup of wine, several cups of wine as he's celebrating Passover with the disciples, as he's doing that, Jesus says in Mark's gospel, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. It's not just some hierarchy of church leaders that decided the blood is all that. Christ himself, as he's celebrating the Last Supper with his disciples, says, this is my blood of the covenant. Yeah, the blood really is that important, according to Jesus. And it's his gospel. And it's his church. The author of the book of Hebrews surveys the whole breadth of Scripture and makes this remark, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. If you go back to, he's alluding to Leviticus chapter 17, but if you want to, on your own, go to Leviticus 16 and highlight or mark all the times the word blood is used. Blood is used over and over. And the author of Hebrews looks and says, it was true then. In the new covenant, it's no less true that blood is required. But the difference is the blood of animals, bulls, goats, sheep, it could never really take away sin. That's why they had to be repeated year after year. But the blood of the perfect spotless lamb of God, it it finishes what is required by God's holiness once and for all time. And it's over and it's better. So is the blood really required? Yeah, it really is required. According to Jesus, according... Old and New Testament both. But why blood? Why couldn't there be some other price that is paid to redeem sinners? Why does it have to be blood? I'm going to suggest to you, this is from the Life Application Bible Commentary, it kind of sets it in the context of the importance of blood going back to the original Passover, when the Jews were redeemed out of slavery in Egypt. You've got similar images. The Jews, the Israelites were slaves in Egypt, in bondage. They were delivered by blood. So the passage out of this commentary describes it this way. Forgiveness of sins was granted in the Old Testament, Old Testament times, on the basis of the shedding of animals' blood. At the time of their exodus from Egypt, the Israelites were spared from the plague of death by killing a lamb with no defects and then placing the blood on the door frames of their homes. In killing the lamb, they Israelites shed innocent blood. The lamb was a sacrifice, a substitute for the person who would have died that night. In spiritual terms, in order for sinful people to be spared, an innocent life had to be sacrificed in their place. Now, I don't know if you've ever asked yourself questions about this whole story of the Passover and the Exodus. But has it ever occurred to you, why doesn't God just distinguish an Egyptian from an Israelite so that no blood is required? I mean, this is the 10th plague. It's the 10th and final plague on the Egyptians. But for a number of plagues before that, it says God distinguished between the Egyptians and the Israelites so that the plague came upon the Egyptians, but Israel was doing just fine where they lived in the land of Goshen. If God is all-knowing, if he's all-powerful, which he is, why doesn't God just decide, when I slay the firstborn, I know the difference between an Egyptian and a Hebrew. I'm only going to slay the Egyptians. And no blood is required. God wants there to be blood required. 
because God is teaching a lesson. He's teaching a lesson to Israel and to the Israelites through all the Old Testament. And he's teaching a lesson to Christians through all the New Testament. See, the Israelite firstborn son is no less guilty than the Egyptian firstborn son. He is just as worthy as being slain that night as any other Egyptian. But God is also teaching, I'm going to provide a substitute who will give its life in place of your son's life, and you will be spared. Now, clearly, we we have another set of problems, because if I've done something worthy of death, and I say, oh, don't worry, I'll catch a chipmunk in my backyard, and you can kill the chipmunk instead. Or up the ante, I'll go purchase a sheep. You just kill the sheep, and I'm off scot-free. The problem in this scenario, going back to the Old Testament, is the life of a lamb isn't nearly as valuable as the life of a person. And so if a person has done something worthy of death, it's hardly satisfying justice to kill an animal. But it's still teaching a principle of substitution and guilt and forgiveness. Because ultimately, there's going to come a life that is more worthy than that lamb and more worthy than my life because it'll be the perfect son of God. And so the perfect son of God, his life is worth more than all of our lives put together. And if God had intended to save every fallen angel, and I believe Satan himself, by the sacrifice of his only begotten son, the the blood of Christ is more valuable than any sin that has ever been committed anywhere by anybody. His life is that valuable. But all this is being taught way back in the Old Testament, beginning with Passover. Augustine of Hippo, highly regarded church father, obviously. Augustine said this, For no one is redeemed except through unmerited mercy. And no one is condemned except through merited judgment. Any who are condemned, they got... Justice was satisfied. They got exactly what they wanted and what they deserved. Any who are ever redeemed is through mercy, simply extended by the grace of God, because none deserve it. This may help you. Uh, Oh, I guess I forgot about this. To finish this up. Through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Uh, The world of difference between not out of the riches of his grace, but according to. I don't, I don't really keep up on who the richest person is. I'm going to go with Elon Musk because I like his, I like his uh, chutzpah. Uh, but Elon Musk, let's go. He's, he's, the most, he's the wealthiest man on earth. He's a billionaire times over. If, if Elon Musk says, we write him a letter, like, oh, we, you know, we could really use, like, we just want to start with a whole new building. And he's like, I will give money to your project out of my wealth. If he gives out of his wealth, that isn't the same as giving according to his wealth. If he gives a dollar, he gave out of his wealth. But if he gives according to his wealth, it's commensurate with how much wealth he has. This redemption is according to the riches of his grace. Not just out of his grace, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. If you're not impressed by this grace... It makes me think you don't understand the slavery of sin and the cost of the blood because we were redeemed according 
to the riches of his grace. Romans says, the second part, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. All the more. It's according to his grace. I want to end with a a five-minute video, and then we'll be out of time, unfortunately. But it's from the Bible Project. It does a pretty helpful video, which is the opposite of what you saw Bart Campolo talk about, where in this video it talks about uh, atonement, redemption, and the cost. If you've never seen these videos, I recommend them highly to you. You will only understand the Bible better by watching these free videos off YouTube. It goes like this. That in him we have redemption, the forgiveness of our trespasses, the riches of his grace, according to the riches of his grace. That's why the church gathers and celebrates. It's because of his grace. Next week we'll celebrate with the Lord's Supper. Uh, If you've never experienced this kind of grace, if you thought religion was just learning to follow a path and to do certain things and make yourself righteous before God, you've missed why Christ came. He did set an example, but more than setting an example, at the center of the picture is a cross. He came to bear sin, to take it away. And all those who believe in him are made new in Christ. Uh, I'm out of time. If you have questions and comments, I would love to hear them afterward. You can shoot me an email next week. I will do my best to make sure I allow for that time. But I knew I wanted to show this video and I was afraid it would be lost if I put it off a week. Let's close in prayer. God, our Father, I thank you for the message of the cross. I thank you for the person of Christ. I thank you for your grace, that we experience it not just in that it shines on the just and the unjust, not just that you know we all experience rain. A, a pagan farmer and a Christian farmer can both uh, plant their seed and see certain results by your mercy. But so much more than that, in Christ, we can have the forgiveness of our sins and our trespasses. We can be adopted into your family as sons with all the rights, all the privileges. Christ is our brother, but it's all in Christ. I pray that Christ is our greatest treasure, our greatest hope, our greatest motivation, our greatest end. It's in his name I pray, amen.